This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. And we're joined today by another great guest. We're honored to have with us today the Honorable Ted McKinney, former Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs with the USDA. Mr. McKinney, sir, how are you? Duke, I'm just fine. It's good to see and talk to you again. Good to see you too. Thank you for joining us today. Well, in the spirit of the five good questions, if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll jump right in. Go right ahead. I'm with you. Okay. Well, uh, as you are well aware in your, in your role as undersecretary, you traveled a lot of miles. I think it was somewhere in excess of over 400,000 miles around the world. Um, and, and, and in that, in that role, as you, as you would, would recall as well, promoting U.S. food and agriculture exports, working to resolve market access issues. And in all that work, you came through Asia quite a bit. I remember uh, many traveled uh, through the region that you, uh, that you led uh, missions here. And uh, while, of course, this region is very diverse, nation to nation and food system to food system, but in a great variety, there are some commonalities. There's some things that maybe uh, perceptions from you on, I'd like to get from you today about uh, what's your impression of some of those common strengths and challenges, perhaps, with agriculture as, as well as food production and trade here across uh, Asia? Sure. Well, you're right. In fact, I traveled to the Asia Pacific area broadly more than anywhere else, except for maybe being here in the United States when I wasn't traveling. COVID shut me down at 490,000 international air miles. We would have had another couple hundred, maybe a quarter million, but uh, COVID sort of took us all down a bit. But yes, I was in the area and I appreciate the question. I don't know. My impressions are that generally speaking, uh, it's an innovative group, uh, or at least there's a desire to be innovative and adopt new technologies. I think in some cases there are food issues. Uh, you know, we hearken back to the days of Dr. Norman Borlaug when, when parts of the of the extended area, you know, were facing famine, and were it not for the Green Revolution, uh, would have been deep, much deeper into famine. So I know that there are uh, are issues involving hunger and a desire to pull themselves out of that. I think it's largely a small farmer area, but every sense I got is that those small farmers want to be or have access to, have the choice of accessing uh, the technologies that the rest of the world has access to. So I, I got to tell you, I, I've, I fell in love with the people and uh, it's one of my regrets I couldn't be back yet again in 2020, but so, so it goes with COVID. Understood. And though it's virtual, we're glad to have you with us today in a sense here back in Asia. So thanks for, for joining us for this. Well, yes. uh, I'd like to pivot maybe to a topic I know you're very familiar with. There's something that's happening later this week that I know you're well aware of. It's the United Nations 2021 Food System Summit that's happening this week. Very important discussion that's happening. It really is all uh, focused on those sustainable development goals, or 17 SDGs. And the spirit of, of that, it's about trying to ensure healthcare more sustainable, and equitable food systems with respect to this this particular discussion and all of the dialogues that have been leading up to today's to rather this week's event in the wake of COVID nineteen as you just mentioned we've all been reminded about the, really the fragile nature of food systems not just here in Asia but really around the world and I'd like to get maybe your your thoughts around if there are maybe one or two must haves with respect to making you know our food systems more resilient and that's just this is big discussions happening or maybe even more. 
Sure. Well, let's just start with the very existence of the food system pre-summit in Rome, late July, and now, as you indicated later on here, the major summit in New York City. I don't think you can ever go wrong with having those kinds of settings. There's always productive work, productive outcomes that can come when the world, or at least different uh, groups come together and talk about issues common to all of us. And there's nothing more important in my book than the sustainable development goals, which I do believe uh, the UN is right. Uh, we're probably not on track to meet those. So the coming together, all the meetings, the listening sessions, all I think uh, probably merit a lot of uh, appreciation and thanks. That said, that said, these kinds of things are only as good as how, how you do it and the who that's behind it. And in that regard, I think there's been a little bit of controversy, maybe a lot. Uh, I think some of the appointments, for example, of the five action tracks were pretty strident in their view. Only one view, my way, nobody else's. Now, there was a, a wide open embrace of all kinds of game-changing ideas, and that was appreciated. And I know that many, many, many groups in the U.S. and many other countries submitted them. I think more than 2,000 game-changer ideas. And they, 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 they varied from alpha to omega, from A to Z, as you would expect. That's fine. But when we were seeing that none of the ideas of the more innovative, modern ag technology worlds, and I mean a dozen, 15, 20 countries, were not being accepted, not, not accepted at all. In fact, just a, a deaf ear to some of the modern technologies that had been proven safe, that add to the quality of food, then I think that was where there started to be a lot of... Um, let's just say discussion politely, consternation, and some of that was addressed in Rome. So I think as we approach the big one in New York City and the possibility of fantastic outcomes, I certainly hope that the UN leadership has recognized that they were deaf silent to a lot of the productivity and the innovations that have brought food and security to many parts of the world, not all, but many parts of the world. And that's what I think myself, and gosh, in my work on this, I talked to some 24 different countries. That includes the U.S. And uh, I know for sure that all of them are looking to see some modest, if not significant change from Rome, where it seemed to be a one idea or one set of ideas, and, and that was it. So I hold great promise. I applaud the efforts. We've got to see a more open uh, receptivity to new ideas. Understood. Thank you for that. Well, if we could, maybe we could stay with the, the topic of, uh, of the Food Systems Summit just a bit longer. <clears throat> Talk sure. about uh, those, uh, again, revisiting the SDGs and really your thoughts around sustainability and food systems specifically. And as you know, sustainability has, has really become much more than just a buzzword. It's become more of a societal expectation around ensuring that, you know, we've got uh, dwindling natural resources and, and healthier diets and lifestyles. It's more of a concern around where does our food come from? How is it grown? And a sincere sort of a, um, concern around that. So, but I think there's also uh, with that a growing also misconception or a common misconception, I'd say, around the idea that sustainability and greater food production are mutually exclusive. When in fact, of course, that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, so, uh, just teeing that up for you, I'd like to get your thoughts maybe around um, how important are innovation and technology in making that possible? Actually, actually driving sustainability. Yes. 
Well, my observation as a professional in this area, an observer of international uh, policy and politics has suggested, I think in recent years, maybe even decades, the whole business of sustainability and food and ag production has splintered a bit. I think that's the best word. And what I mean by that is some people focus almost exclusively on the environmental aspects of, uh, of uh, sustainability. Fair enough. It's very, very important. And others focus on, uh, uh, on just the safety aspect. And what seems to have been forgotten a lot is the economic. And some people started interpreting the economics as, oh, is it affordable to consumers? Well, that's one aspect. But what seems to be forgotten is, is it profitable for a farmer to produce? So I don't know what will come out, but I hope that one of the major outcomes is that there is a re-embrace of the three legs of the sustainability model. It's, 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 of course, environmental. It is, of course, social, but it's also economic. And that means, can the farmer make a living? Because through the Rome pre-summit and some of the many, many game-changing ideas, we've seen a lot of great ideas, but it's like waving a magic wand and saying, I want all these perfect things with the environment, all these perfect things that satisfy every aspect of society. And, and oh, by the way, economics, that's not something of importance to me. You guys can worry with that. Well, excuse me, it takes all three. So I hope that's an outcome from this summit. And I think that could be an enormous win for everybody to bring back and recognize three legs, three legs to the stool, Duke. Yep. Thank you, sir. It's a great answer. Well, uh, continuing on in the same uh, spirit of this conversation, back to the United Nations, if we can, and talking about uh, something that they shared earlier this year. There was a UN report that was issued, I believe, in January of this year that noted uh, two-thirds of the children in, in, uh, in this region and here in Asia are suffering from the effects of malnutrition. It's a heartbreaking and really unacceptable reality that we're, we're, we're coping with here in Asia. Now, a previous episode of this podcast, we had the opportunity to speak with someone from the International Waste Research Institute, Erie. And of course, they've been instrumental in, uh, in, in the development of something I know you know are well aware of, golden rice. Yes. Uh, and so big developments, big news in recent weeks uh, coming from the Philippines as they became the first country to approve this vitamin A enriched grain for commercial cultivation and uh, after really more than a decade of field tests. So um, a lot there to, to, to think about, but I'd like to get your thoughts around uh, the role of biofortification and, and what it could mean, what it, what it should mean, hopefully for helping address this challenge of malnutrition here in Asia and really globally. Well, the simple answer in my point of view is that biofortification has brought so, so much to good nutrition, good health, healthier children, healthy adults over, over, over previous decades. And where it is not being uh, allowed or utilized or there's not a common practice of it, I hope that they at least are more open to that. So that would be my first thing. It's a good thing. It must be done right. There are, of course, regulations, but, uh, but it's proven itself time and time and time again. I mean, as, as a kid growing up, I benefited from biofortified uh, food and drink. And so I would hope that at least the choice is there the choice is there for other countries around the world to, uh, to do the same. I'll tell you what though, one of the things that we're facing here is, is some obstacles to 
uh, modern agricultural innovation. Um, and, and I use, it's funny you brought up that example, Duke, because in many, many speeches over the last seven, eight, nine years, I have raised golden rice as the quintessential example of a beautiful technology addressing uh, biofortification, addresses river blindness, and all the things that go with improving a child and adult's lives. And yet it was the anti-technology naysayers that really put the damper on that. I mean, I remember when golden rice was up for approval and it was rejected, notably in Europe. Uh, I also, just to, just to take another example, I know that pesticides and fertilizers are oftentimes an easy target for people to point to, notwithstanding the great benefits they've brought. And to that, I say, well, great, let me just take my farm in Indiana. We are down 25% in the use of insecticide. We're down 15% in the use of fertilizer. And that's because of modern technology. Plant is still getting everything it needs. We're just now measuring and applying that at a better time. And yet many of those technologies that bring reductions of those kinds of uh, commodities are, are still criticized. So I think we, I hope out of this conversation, which is why I opened as I did, I hope so much that there will be a greater eye-opening, a greater receptivity to at least looking at new modern innovations, not dictating that people accept it. Just be in a lot, open yourself to introducing it, understanding it, and then make the choice, you and your farmers. Thank you for that. Uh, that's actually something we hear, we've heard a lot, I think, in, this, in the first few episodes of this podcast, the role of technology, role of innovation broadly, and uh, just making it available to farmers, giving them the option would be powerful. So we've come to the fifth and final question. And with this, we usually kind of uh, have our, our guests take a look into the crystal ball and, and, and look forward a little bit. We've been talking about some, some challenges, some negative uh, uh, aspects of the of the region and and generally around some of the, the the barriers that we're all facing, but but what are some positive things? Maybe there's some things that you look ahead by a few years and say, well, this is an area we think we're going to make some strides, some big developments, things to come to look out for in the next five, ten or so years. Sure. Well, in the positive area, uh, my one major megatrend, there are others if you want to get into it, but my one major megatrend is that we know that we're going to be in that 9 to 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, which means we've got to just about double food production. And of course, we want that to be nutritious, healthy food production for uh, children and adults around the world. Well, I don't think there's any other way than to improve productivity, improve and adopt innovation to get there. I mean, there have been naysayers and productions like Malthus's theory that suggests that we would, we would have run out of food a long time ago, but it has always been innovation that has bailed us out and allowed for those additional people on the planet to at least uh, be fed. Now there's logistics issues, there's famines, there's insects, pestilence, all that. But if you took that aside, there is and has been enough food for, uh, for the people, and that will continue. So if you believe that there is going to be the 9 to 10 billion, and if you are serious about meeting the sustainable development goals by 2030, and I'll extend it by 2050 since that's our marker out there, innovation is going to have to be a part of it. Now, I'm not here to dictate to any one farmer, any one person, any consumer, any government what they should do. But what I am here to say is don't, please, please don't be complaining about the lack of food, the inability to produce food, and then at the same time be rejecting the very gift that can deliver on that promise. Our own farm has seen 
you know, 10, 20 fold increase in productivity. And I'm very proud of that because our farm is producing a lot of the feedstocks that goes around the world to feed chickens, cows, pigs, uh, dairy or beef and dairy. And, and I'm very proud of that. But I know that many parts of the world, you have groups that just deny that. And that's what we saw early on. If you go back and read those five action tracks, there was a complete silence on a lot of the uh, innovative techniques and the commitments that industries around the world had advanced. So I am bullish that we're going to get there. But boy, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult road to hoe right now just because the voices are so shrill. Unfortunately, the UN put some uh, rather strident activists, some people with a single view in the leadership of that. And I hope that will change. In fact, I'm so pleased that Agnes Kalabata was named as the emissary because I think she understands both sides of this. So I'm a big fan there and we hope that we can deliver uh, and that the UN can deliver here in just a few days. Thank you, sir. And uh, with that, you are officially off the five good questions hot seat. We appreciate and thank you again for your time today. Mr. McKinney, thank you again. Well, Duke, thanks for you and this podcast and getting information and communication out. It's very important. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 